1: This show was originally broadcast on the 22nd of August, 2011.
0: Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we work together to bring you the best science show around. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio on 2SCR, broadcast on 107.3 FM in Sydney, Australia, and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can podcast our show on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. So this week we're going to hear from Professor Simon Goechte at the University of Nottingham about the psychology of cooperation.
1: The interesting thing is, can unrelated strangers who don't know each other, are they able to cooperate to the common benefit? And um, if, you're, if you're outside my network, you certainly have no right to punish me. Yeah? So go home, leave me alone.
0: But first, let me introduce my hopefully very cooperative panel. We've got James Bourne, Cavazini, Cavazzini, Julianne Popple, and myself. So
4: guys, have you heard any good news this week? There's a species of butterfly in the Amazonian forests called uh, Helioconus pneumata. Now, this particular species exhibits a really interesting form of mimicry, where it mimics another species that's rather unpalatable or toxic to uh, predators such as birds. So this particular species not only mimics one other species, but up to seven Different types of um, morph morphs. Uh,
3: the same. The same animal can change, or just within the species, different. Within the species, mm-hmm.
4: so within a population, or within the species as a whole. Yeah.
3: So it's not like the T1000. <laughs> not
4: quite. Not okay. quite that advanced, but still pretty impressive because most cases of mimicry, it's just one species mimicking another, but this one's mimicking up to seven species, and not even close relatives too. It's mimicking species of a quite distantly related Melanaea family.
3: Uh, what are we looking at here? A butterfly that can then change into a different type of butterfly?
4: No, it, it's, it's still the same species, but it just looks different. It appears different, has different colour patterns on its wing. If the predator eats, eats one, say, butterfly and gets sick, it's not going to eat, want to eat any more of those butterflies. So if in a particular region predators learn to recognise a particular wing colour pattern, it's going to strongly select... For that wing colour pattern in that area. So, you're going to see a lot of regional variation between populations where some will exhibit one morph and others will exhibit another morph. And that's going to depend on what other species that are unpalatable are in that area. Its offspring could develop into one of the other morphs because it's, it's controlled actually by a super gene. Mm. So, it's like a cluster of genes. And it's like a flicking a switch, you know. So, cool. certain genes will be activated in order to produce an overall morphology that's adapted to that particular environment.
2: Science made fascinating, weird, disturbing and fun.
4: Diffusion.
0: And now on to our feature. So Mick, can you explain to me why we just can't seem to get along?
3: Well, I don't know if I can, but a couple of weeks ago I met Professor Simon Gechter of the University of Nottingham, who was giving a lecture at the uh, Sydney University, Sydney Ideas Forum. And he started life as an economist, a professor of macroeconomics at the University of Zurich, but now he's a professor of the psychology of economic decision-making. And this is because he uses classic sociology and psychology models to test why people do or don't cooperate. I mean, classically, you think of the selfish gene uh, story that uh, Richard Dawkins told in the 70s, that would suggest that we should only take care of ourselves and our families because you know that's in our interests. Or even you know, philosophers like David Hume in the 17th century described Homo economicus, who's you know, it's it's rational just to be selfish. But that's not true. People do cooperate in some environments, and so he wants to know why, what makes people cooperate, and how do you get people to cooperate for the the common good rather than yeah, than the selfish uh, motives. So he uses a, an experiment called the public goods game. And just to see if this really works, we're going to run through the public goods game with the four guinea pigs in the, in the studio here. So let me explain. First, I'm going to give you $20 each. And at each round of the game, you're allowed to chip into the public pot. Whatever you chip in, obviously, that comes off your $20. And then I, the banker, will... Double that amount and then redistribute it equally. So every round you get some back from from your little tax, and we play the round. Uh, we play the game through ten rounds, and we, we see who's you know, who's prepared to give up something for the public good, but also that gets redistributed back to them, like you know, like healthcare, like um, like good roads, like education, or who prefers just to keep the money for themselves to buy their plasma TVs and and their holidays to Noosa. And just to make this a little bit more realistic so that we're not just playing with Monopoly money, there's a very tangible prize here in the form of a chocolate bar. I can't name the chocolate bar for uh, because this is community radio, but let me just say that it's in a yellow package with slightly pyramidal-shaped pieces and a little caramel y bits in the middle. And
2: also. it's delicious.
3: So, you know, if this isn't enough of a real-life reward for winning the public goods game, I don't know what is. So let's kick off. Round one, I'm going to get you each to scribble so no one else can see. Scribble in the first box to tell me how much you're going to invest in the public purse. All right, now hold them up for me so I can scribble them down. So James has been pretty generous. He's given me $10. Julianne's given me five. And Victoria, the, the mean girl, has only put in two.
0: Trust so, the American.
3: So that's 17 all up. Oh, I'm going to double that. Thirty-four. Divide that by three. I'm going to give you back each eleven dollars. Another quarter comes round. Its spring is in the air. James, how are you feeling? Feeling this this time?
2: Look, I have to admit, I'm feeling increasingly less and less generous as I see the other people around me sort of stinging their way out. Oh, gee. And like at the start there, you know, I figure oh, I'm in a high tax bracket in Australian terms. That's you know 49% of my income to tax. That's 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 reasonable, but no. Maybe maybe not everyone else wants to do that. I feel so. like you're wearing
3: it. So so what's this brought you down to?
2: Look, I, I, I think a nice conservative sort of investment is 20 to 25% of what I have at the moment. But, you know, we'll see if that trend continues through. Um, so, look, I've got $26 as, as we speak, and I think I'm going to invest six of them dollars.
3: Six bucks, six bucks. <laughs> So how's everyone doing? How's how's everyone balance book at the moment, James? Uh,
2: I've I've managed to hit thirty four dollars, which is um, which is a solid return. I, I'm enjoying the interest that the bank's paying. It's getting getting in there, mm. Julianne.
4: Uh, I'm, I'm at thirteen. Unless I've done my math wrong. No, it seems right. You've it's done thirteen. Thirteen? How possible? it yeah. possible. You've been too nice. Yep, been too nice. Apparently, mm. I'm at forty seven.
3: Kaching.
4: <laughs> I must be doing it wrong.
3: Well, no, maybe... Maybe just doing it
2: really, really mm.
3: correctly. Really, you're really right. Maybe. I've just
0: been giving 20 to 30% every round.
3: All right, uh, the summer cycle season comes around and uh, everyone's feeling good. It's almost Christmas. James, how are you feeling?
2: Look, it's Christmas time, so um, I figure let, let's try and invest as much money as possible to try and increase my return. And I figure everyone else might be on that boat as well. So I've put $10 into the kitty
3: this time around. Good on you, James. What about you, Julian? It's
4: one. I'm feeling the pinch.
3: Ooh, only one. You've got to save up for all those Christmas presents, don't you?
4: I'm putting
0: in $8. It's steady and true.
3: Bit of variety here. $19 all up. Double that to get $38. i am going to give each of you $14 back.
0: Oh, yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. How are we going? Around nine. It's going okay. What's going to happen mm-hmm. now, James?
2: Oh, it's getting super competitive, but uh, I'm going to go fifteen this round.
3: Ooh, it's not.
4: Yeah, I might throw in twenty this round.
3: Ooh, big pressure at the end of the game.
4: I'm putting in fifteen.
3: Hundred dollars. That's thirty-three dollars each. So pressure's on now. There's the the sweat is tangible in the studio.
4: What
0: do we got? Show uh, us uh, the chocolate mix. We're at round ten. Shall we do the big reveal,
3: Victoria? What's your final score? One twenty-nine. One
4: sixteen. One
3: twenty-two. Oh, oh, oh so, close. So, close. so close! So
4: close! And yet so far. Yeah, I
3: know. The
4: chocolate's mine. But really, damn accounting error.
3: <laughs> so you can see the uh, greed has all bubbled to the surface. Victoria is the proud winner of the chocolate bar, but really what we're interested in is not the final score, what people finally won, but actually how their behaviour changed over the, over the 10 rounds. So let's quickly plot the donations that people made to the tax man over time. All right, Mick, so how did we go? Sorry, mouth's full of chocolate. Let's analyse the behaviour that you guys showed. So Julianne started kind of conservatively around the $5 mark, crept up to $8. And then sort of stabilised around ten, twelve dollars. James was pretty generous. From the beginning, around the ten dollar mark, crept up to twelve, fifteen dollars. And Victoria, surprisingly, very mean and sceptical at first, with two and five dollar contributions, started whacking it out at ten, fifteen, even eighteen dollars. But unfortunately, I have to say you guys have failed the experiment. Uh, your behaviour was very atypical when compared with lab experiments performed by Simon Gechter and others. Most people start out, you know, on, a, on average, people start out around the $10 mark. And then as they see each round, they, they're actually getting ripped off. There's plenty of free riders in the room that are not chipping in. They get less and less generous. And on average, the donations trickle down to like $3 by around 10
0: Why do you think that is? I mean, is it just that we're really bad at math? Which I think this experiment has also established.
3: Well, that's actually the question I asked Professor Gechter. And his answer is that we are what, what he terms conditional cooperators.
1: Uh, we believe based on our research is that um, most people are conditional, what we call conditional cooperators, which means they are willing to contribute provided others contribute as well. So they form a belief and expectation of what others will do. Then they try to match that to some extent. And if they, you know, and some people just never do that. They never contribute, you know, because they see, because individually you always earn more by keeping your money. Collectively, you know, it, 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 everybody benefits if people contribute. And this is exactly the feature that underlies many of these real world uh, issues that I was uh, alluding to before. That there's a, a difference between private interest and collective interest. And this is mimicked here. And I think the, the reason why cooperation is, you know, fla- fragile or collapsing eventually is has to do with the fact that uh, the conditional cooperators realize that others are not chipping in or contributing or helping as much as, they sh- uh, as the conditional cooperators would like them to do. And then they are disgruntled and disappointed and uh, they d- reduce their contribution and this makes the whole thing collapse. You know. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com.
3: So what do you reckon, guys? It sounds like you, you're more uh, generous than the average bear.
0: Well, I think for me, a lot of it had to do with precedent. When I saw that Julianne and James were putting in bigger amount of bucks. That really motivated me to increase my givings as well. If, say, Julianne had said, nah, I'm going to give zero every single time, I would have been pretty pissed off and I probably wouldn't have contributed.
3: Well, and in fact, you're right. He says that uh, even if you play the game just one round, but you tell people that everyone else in the previous round chipped in a certain high amount, they will feel some sort of social pressure to comply. So it seems like everyone's a conditional cooperator. But in the real world, you don't pay your taxes just because you're a nice person, let's be honest. You pay because you might get busted if you don't. And you know, the same goes for many real-world scenarios. So how, how do you think your behavior would have changed if you had the chance to punish Victoria for being tight? If you could dock $3 of hers simply by chipping in an extra dollar yourself?
0: I think it would you've got more to lose, so you would definitely have to play much more aggressively. For sure. For sure.
3: Yeah. That's capitalism. Let's see what uh, the real life data says.
1: Yeah, in the public goods game we take a stylized version of this, and this means that um, it's a sort of a model of social informal social sanctions, where everyone can punish, ostracize, criticize, ridicule anyone else. In the experiment, we make it monetary, to make it costly for people to do it, which which means that they have less of an incentive to do it, and certainly selfish people, uh, people who want to maximize their monetary earnings, would never do it. And for that reason, we modeled it that way. And it turned out that uh, many people were actually willing uh, to do this punishing, which is an interesting phenomenon, because if you think about it, if punishment influences people's behavior, that is they contribute more to the common good, then that's a public punishing is a public good, it's providing a public good because others will benefit. If I punish, I incur the costs and all the others benefit. So the question then is if people are not able to provide the first public good, the underlying public good as we have discussed before, why then are they willing to provide the second public good? So theoretically, yeah we shouldn't observe this punishing because it's costly, it's a public good, why do it? But people do it, and they. And this public good doesn't deteriorate. So if even if we repeat this experiment for many rounds, as many rounds as 50, people are still willing to do it.
3: So isn't that weird that you know people won't donate to charity, but they'll happily spend money to put people in prison? Obviously, in the in the real world, there are you know other complex psychologies at work and social pressures and so on and. Uh, Professor Gechter even told me that if you just make people promise, say say the words, I promise to do this, I promise to chip in that, it does make people more likely to, to chip in. But you can, Because of all the cultural and social aspects, you can imagine that people in different countries might behave differently, right? I mean, I've seen people, 50 people in London queue for a bus stop, at a bus stop. I've seen Germans standing on the side of the road, waiting for the little green man, even though there wasn't a car in sight. Whereas in Italy, where I come from, forget about it. Everyone's in it for themselves. Everyone's trying to scam the system. So if you played the public goods game in across the world, in Seoul, Copenhagen, Minsk, who do you guys reckon would be the least cooperative cities? Uh, without
1: punishment, it was Melbourne, I have to say, and Athens, I think, and uh, Nottingham. So, and, um, and Istanbul were the four least cooperative cities without punishment. With punishment the situation changed completely. Essen remained the most selfish place um, without, with punishment, Nottingham and Melbourne uh, increased their contributions a lot and, um, and Istanbul also remained at very low levels. So this is fascinating because they are, you know, these participants, they all play the exact same game. So the stakes are the same, everything is exactly the same they behave very similar without punishment they contribute little you add the punishment option they behave very differently radically differently which is uh, you know and, and when this is not this, this is just fascinating and it seems to have to do something with the society wide social norms but how exactly and why and so on uh, we don't know yet but uh, we have we have the data and they seem to suggest this
3: well, it, it is surprising indeed that the, the behaviours separate along, let's say, cultural or ethnographic lines. You've actually surveyed attitudes towards these norms of civic cooperation in a worldwide survey. What kind of questions did you ask and what did you find from these studies?
1: So It was not me who did this. This is the so-called World Value Survey, which is uh, uh, run in 60, 70 or 80 countries by now all over the world, sampling representative populations. the representative samples from these different societies and they are asked things like do you think it's justified to evade taxes, do you think it's justified to dodge fares on public transport or to claim welfare benefits you're not entitled to. Some people rate this, you know, how justified it is to do these things. These are the data we use in our study because the countries around the world differ quite a lot along these dimensions. But they are interesting because they reflect, uh, that's our argument, they reflect society-wide levels of social norms of cooperation, because all these issues in tax morale, public transport, the welfare system, are public goods, are real-world public goods. If people don't pay their taxes, then this means, you know, they, they might be, because nobody can be excluded from going to the hospital or using public transport or the roads. And other public infrastructure, but if they don't pay their taxes, this means they are free riding on those services that others have to to Somebody has to fund them, and um, so I, we saw these attitudes that people hold here. They, they reflect how the social norms in the society work with regard to these issues.
3: I always knew it. Melbourne's a stingy, miserable, rainy place,
0: but they respect authority.
3: It'd
1: be interesting to
2: see how this sort of mapped in a place like Pyongyang or, like, old-school Stalingrad or Leningrad or somewhere where the monetary system is almost foreign to people just because of the way that the state
3: controls all the affairs. Well, actually, to be fair to Turkey and to Istanbul, according to this World Values Survey, they, they seem to know that cheating on the bus or cheating taxes is wrong, but they have a little trust that the system will do anything about it.
0: Is it like a a fear of being swindled by a corrupt government? Because obviously that would decrease your your motivation to pay taxes.
3: I think that's it, that they don't think anything will be done about it. But finally, I guess what we really want to know is what this experiment tells us about real-world interactions. How can we predict or change the way people behave with with real-world problems like like tax evasion or the, the biggest one of all, the question of climate change? He calls this the biggest public goods game of all. Does this model suggest that you'd need some global policeman to sanction against those that don't help out in cutting their carbon emissions?
1: I mean, sanctions definitely will not work. I don't think we can use them. We'd have to have some other solution because, um, I mean, the United States, just as an example, they will never accept any sort of, uh, you know, whatever the government is, I think. You know, who knows what happens in 50 years. But. Uh, you know, they have not accepted the international courts for uh, war criminals and things like that. So they don't want to do this. And the Kyoto Protocol was in place. It was uh, you know, broken by m- many countries, not just the United States. The United States never signed it. So I don't think that uh, enforcement will work in uh, much sanction, through sanctions much. But I do think is what the West ought to do is to setting a good example and to move ahead by showing that they are doing something and then that they do their part and then maybe they can convince in a few years the developing countries. Yeah.
3: So, in the, termi- so I, in the terminology of the game model, in the public yes. goods game, do you believe that a, if a culture does start to develop of individual sacrifice for the public good, does your game model give you any hope that others will follow suit or will, will, yeah. will the cooperation fall apart regardless? Well, I mean,
1: it, it's always going to be fragile, I mean, that's what I believe and it has to be sustained by, uh, maybe to some extent, by strong social norms. In some, in some aspects, for example, there, there is hope. Uh, in, in, in many European countries there are strong norms again for, uh, in, in favour of recycling, not just throwing your waste somewhere. And, uh, so th- and it took a while to establish those norms but um, now they more or less work so it's not impossible to change norms but um, I-, I think it's a, it's a very very difficult problem because it, it has to be done at the country level then you have to enforce it at the local level somehow which is politically difficult because uh, you know I mean people on the street they say why should I not use my car and the big companies are allowed to you know uh, you the, know, same,
3: the same psychology manifests yes, at the local level. I think, level, I, I, level. Think,
1: I think that will happen. So people say the conditional cooperation. So everybody, you know, the, the, I think the trick of this is to ensure that most people, majority, play get, play the game and play their part, you know, and particularly the big players. I mean, I don't think without the United States and Europe, particularly the in, in, uh, United States, not being on board in this climate uh, thing. I can't see how this uh, will work very well. I have to say I'm a bit skeptical from what we know from the behavioral economic side. But I do think is what the West ought to do is to set a good example and to move ahead by showing that they are doing something and then that they do their part and then maybe they can convince in a few years the developing countries.
2: Yeah, I, that, that, that was really interesting to see the way that this situation applies, I think, for us to the current political climate in Australia surrounding the entire climate change issue.
4: Yeah, you see it quite predominantly. I mean, when politicians look at what Australia is contributing in terms of carbon outputs uh, relative to what other countries are contributing, you see the argument a lot in the media, oh, why should we reduce our emissions by X percent if such and such a country isn't reducing their emissions by X percent. So it's a a very similar psychology that's happening on an international country by country scale.
3: So I wonder if that makes Australia and the US the, uh, the Athens and the Turkey of the example that, you know, we just won't respect the social norms.
2: Unless maybe you could get sent to jail for not cutting your carbon emissions by a certain percent domestically. We could somehow make that Uniform across the world, or something. When you're relying on people to just do it out of the good of their heart for the future of the, the planet, there's always going to be that sort of vision of my money in the here and now. So, yeah.
3: Well, but there is that small window of social norms. If, if actually Europe and China might be doing more than, gee, maybe we're we're obliged to chip in a bit better. Which is what you guys were saying when you were playing the game, right? I, I didn't want to be the, the seen to be the stingy one.
0: But there need to be sanctions associated with being the stingy, or seen to be the stingy one. I mean, what, what has America really lost from not ascribing to the Kyoto Treaty?
3: Just a lot of respect. <laughs> but other than that, nothing really. I'm afraid we haven't solved any global problems for the time being, but uh, that was uh, Professor Simon Gechter, who has a lot of interesting things to say about uh, why we do or don't get along.
0: And that's all the time we have for this week on Diffusion. I'd like to thank our guinea pigs, Mick Cavazzini, James Bourne, Julianne Popple, and the show was co-produced by Mick and James this week, recorded in the studios of 2SER, broadcast in Sydney on 107.3 FM and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Remember to podcast our show at www.diffusionradio.com and email your suggestions and glowing feedback.
1: Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com C slash Diffusion Radio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends.
0: Do make sure to join us next week for more Science Wondering on Diffusion Science Radio.
5: Science is fun.